you would please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We are looking at verses 7 through 11. I was asked if I preached at my mom's church while I was gone. I yes, I did. And I was asked, uh, what did you preach on? And I said, Revelations. And they said, well, what part? I said, the entire book. And they said, you taught the entire book of Revelation at your mom's church in 45 minutes. Okay, You guys didn't know I could talk that fast, did you? <laughs> I don't think anybody understood what I said, but we did it. Anyway, follow with the reading of the Word of God, beginning in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Father, help us. As I was going through my notes and my own study in this serious text, I realized how massive it is. So, Father, I pray that uh, it is not me teaching today, but it will be you that my brothers and sisters would hear these words and be overwhelmed with what they accomplish. But also, Father, understand that we have an awesome God who has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So help us to stand in the grace that is Christ Jesus. Amen. When I was with you last, I taught on grace. One message on grace, and I shared to you that uh, over the few thousand years since the birth of the church, we have slowly but surely minimized grace. It is now just, it means unmerited favor. So I didn't deserve it, but I got it, so amen. But I showed with you in our last message together that grace gives sometimes as objects, but also as self. And we've seen when we were together that God gave himself by his grace. God gave his son by His grace, and of course, the Holy Spirit by His grace. So when you see God, you know that He is a God of grace because He gives Himself. Okay? One of the things that I have watched in my years of walking with the King is that many Christians know what they're supposed to do for God. Some of them are bound and determined to try to get it done. But one of the things that I do see missing is that, do you understand what Christ has done for you? And immediately you will say, well, yeah, he saved us. Well, that's just the beginning. There is much, 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 much more. It is Christianity is not just what we do for God. Because the expression of grace is, is of what God has done for us. The giving of Himself to an undeserving sinner. 
Okay? If you look at your outline, yes, the numbers are out of line. My secretary has reminded me of that. Are you sure that you want to do that? I said, I know what I'm doing, believe it or not. Okay? The first thing is, is what his right to give gifts. The second is his gifts to the individual believer. And then thirdly, his gifts to the whole church. And when I read this, I understand the Apostle Paul, he comes out of an amazing text on who we are in Christ. But then he goes and he says, because of who you are in Christ, walk worthy. Here's how you do this. And we looked at this in the last few months. All right. He immediately goes out of this walking worthy text into these gifts. So he gives you that first set of gifts to every believer. And then all of a sudden it dawns on him. Why does Christ have the right to give these? And then he gives you an exposition of Psalm 68. And then he goes and gives you the gifts that were given to the church. Okay? So I'm going to pick it up in verses 8 to 10 today on Christ's right to give these gifts. So if you would look at these texts, beginning in verse 8, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descends is himself, also he who ascends far above all heavens, so that he might fill all things. All right? It's like I said, Paul is going to give you a biblical exposition of the 68th Psalm. If you want to turn over to it, we will continue. The 68th Psalm is a... a is an amazing psalm. And he explains to us the reason he has the right to give these gifts. All right? If you look at Psalm 68 and look at verse 1, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so let the wicked perish before God. All right? It doesn't take a theologian to say that this is a picture of God as a conquering hero. God sets to make war in this text with his enemies. Just a little footnote in case you were wondering... He wins every time, all right? But the text that Paul has given to us comes out of verse 18. I want you to get that understanding of what the 68th Psalm is. It is a conquering hero, all right? Then verse 18, you have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, and you have received gifts among men. Even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. All right? 
That's what Paul intersects into the letter to the Ephesians. All right? Ascending to the hill of victory, all of the spoils of the conquering hero and the captives of the conquering hero ascending to this hilltop. Paul is using this, and by him doing it under the inspiration of the Spirit, then you can take this text now and say, this is a prophecy of who? Jesus Christ. All right? It is a picture of Christ's great victory. His victory over Satan. His victory over sin. His victory over death. And his victory over hell. And the psalmist writing this psalm is looking forward. He's looking to the future of this conquering hero. When you look historically, Wednesday nights we're going through the kings of Israel. When you see the kings of Israel, and when they would go into battle, if they won, they would ascend the hill of Jerusalem. Okay, Mount Zion. All right, it's funny. I've been there and I remember reading the gospel record and it said Jesus was in Jericho and he looks at his disciples and say, let us go up to Jerusalem. And you think, okay, he's going to go up to Jerusalem. Well, Jericho is 2000 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is 5000 feet above sea level. Okay, so when he says go up, he's not kidding. All right, but the Jerusalem plateau is sits above several ravines and, and the hillsides, and it's the high place. All right, and that's where the king would go to proclaim to Jerusalem and to the nation of Israel. I am victorious. It was a place of great victory. It is also the place where God had established his people. In Jerusalem, the city of David. They ascend Mount Zion, this victorious king. All right? Remember Palm Sunday? The celebration time? They were laying their coats and the palm branches. That was a picture of the conquering hero. Right? But instead of riding in with the white charger and the shield and all the rest of it, he comes in on a donkey, the colt of a donkey. All right? So when there's two things that follow the conquering hero, one is the spoils of the victory. Right? The riches, the gold, the rubies, the emeralds, the silver, all of this stuff, this is all being taken. But he also would have slaves. Those who would surrender, they would bring them into captivity. But he makes a statement there that, it's, that I watch people try to do a bunch of theological yoga with. And I don't believe, I think there's times that we just make things more complicated. All right? He said he led captives, the captives. Okay? It literally is saying recapture the captive. All right. And the first thing, I don't know about you, but the first thing that I deal with is what the, what is he talking about? Well, if you look at the history of Israel many times, many, many times, 
Uh, they were conquered by other countries. If you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and all the rest of them, they were taken prisoner by who? Babylon. And what did they do with them? Took them to Babylon. All right? So many times these countries would have Jews as slaves that they had, I don't know how I can say this, but they would gather these up, collect these people during different battles. All right? So you see that throughout the Jewish history. So the victorious king of Israel would come in and defeat this group, and he would set free these Jewish prisoners. All right? And the prisoners of that nation and the prisoners who were now free would be following the conquering hero. So do you see why it says the captives? And he's leading the captives? This is a picture that helps you understand this text. All right? Now, I'm not done yet. We've got, we got some more to deal with here. The conquering hero won the war. This victory is done. The spoils of the defeat are in one hand. The people who were taken prisoners are in another hand. And the prisoners who were of your people have now been set free. Kind of a joyous picture if you think about it. I remember, some of you don't remember, but a guy we had here, Henry Piointek. He uh, was at Bataan. Actually, Corregidor, but he did was part of the, 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 the death march. He was engaged to his fiance at the time that the war, he was deployed by the American army to Corregidor, and they were overrun by the Japanese, and there was, didn't hear nothing. They, they didn't know whether Henry was a prisoner. They didn't know whether Henry was dead. They had no idea. Okay. She waited for the entire war. And then when the war had concluded in the Pacific, they started releasing the prisoners. And they'd put them on these ships and they'd bring them in. Most of them went into San Francisco Harbor. She waited. Aldo was her name. She waited. She stood there on that pier and waited for these ships to unload these very, in most cases, very ill-treated men. And sure enough, there comes walking Henry. And uh, <laughs> they, they had to put him, put him in a new uniform and all the rest of it, but he was very emaciated and all the rest of it. And he said he looked up and he saw her and he said she'd never looked so beautiful. And I said, well, what'd you do? And he says, I went and found a judge and got married. <laughs> he said, I'm, I'm not going to wait this out no more. <laughs> I was like, well, good man, Henry, good man. But that's what I think of when I think about a conquering army and he starts releasing the prisoners and he brings your people back who had been incarcerated. Jesus won this battle. And you know, I was talking about this in Sunday school this morning. If you're really honest with yourself, you look at the mock trials that he had, the false accusations that were brought against him. People actually lied in their testimony against Jesus Christ. 
the beatings that he had, the mockings that he had, and then hang him on a cross. It's a little bit difficult for us to say, look, a victory. It's just, what? Okay. And after Jesus was on the cross, he ascended to the Mount of Victory. And behind him were the spoils of war, and he led captivity captive. Back up to your text there in 9 and 10. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended? He came back with the captives, and he came back with the spoils to give. Paul wants to explain who this is. Who is this person who has the right to give this? Who is the person who has the right to free these captives and take others captive? Who's got that right? Well, he does a pretty good job there, I think. Look at verse 10, the end of verse 10. So that he might fill all things. All right? That person must fill all things. Well, that's easy. We've been in Ephesians for a little bit. And I will take you back to chapter 1, verse 23. Which is his body. Speaking of the church. The fullness of him who fills All in all. So, this text in chapter 4 is speaking of Christ. So it says he descended and he ascended. Why? Christ is the one who fills all in all. Christ dominates the universe. That's who Paul is talking about. He ascended in verse 8 because of his victory. But verse 10 says, and 9 says, he ascended. And 10 says, he ascended. But we also says, he descended. So three times. Now listen, I don't know about you. I'm not a biblical scholar. But I only know one person who has ascended bodily to heaven. And that's in Acts 1. And it said he went up and the clouds covered him. And I'm amazed those guys still ain't standing there going like this. Well, it's, I, what? Whoa, wait. So Paul has taken Psalm 68, shows that it applies to Christ. And here he says it is a prophecy of Christ. It is a prophecy of him descending. And it is a prophecy of him ascending. And he went to the ultimate Victory Hill. Heaven. Christ brought the spoils and led the captives free. So, what does that have to do with gifts? Thought you'd never ask. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins 
once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. All right? That's the cross. But note the word there, the end of verse 18, in the spirit. Note the spirit. It is a small s, isn't it? It's a small s. He is alive in the what? Spirit. Okay? The outer man had died on the cross. The inner man was what? Alive. Where was he? I know where the outer man was. They took him off the cross. They put him in a borrowed tomb. I know where that part is. There were three days there. Where was he? Because it said he was made alive in the spirit. So what? What did he go to Barbados? What was he doing? Like I said, we know where his body was. All right, read verse 19. In which, okay, okay, remember this. I know we put another verse in there, but it's still the same sentence. Look what it says. In the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Okay, some of your texts may say he preached. The word is actually karios, which means proclamation. He proclaimed. Who did he proclaim to? To the spirits that were where? In prison. Those who were in prison. All right, I'm going to give you a picture. This is an Old Testament picture. Now, there's several ways that you can hear it, and I just want you to be, I want to make this clear. When you hear the word hell, okay, understand that word is not Hades. Okay, that word is Gehenna. That's hell. There's a, a valley on the west side of the Temple Mound called the Valley of Hinnom. Okay, it's called that because when the Jews started sacrificing their children to Moloch, they would throw them into that valley. And they called that valley the Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of Hell. Okay, I got to tell you a funny story. I come walking off the Temple Mound one time. And down, the, the, that big valley's not as quite as big because all the rubble from Jerusalem has been chucked down in there. So, but down in the middle, bottom of it is an amphitheater. They do concerts in it. Okay. And so I was walking across, it's heading up on the other side of the hill and I was walking across it and I was walking with this guy and he looks at me and he says, do you hear that? And I said, yeah. And I said, what is that? And we stopped and we listened for a little bit. It was the hallelujah chorus. And we looked down and there was a group of people singing the Hallelujah Chorus from that amphitheater. He looked over at me. He's an archaeologist. He looked over at me and says, I never thought that I would hear the Hallelujah Chorus coming out of Gehenna. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> me either. But Hallelujah! <laughs> anyway, back to what I was going at. So, when you hear the word Hades, or you, that's Greek. If you hear the word Sheol, that's Hebrew. Okay, all the saying is a place of the dead. Okay, they're not talking about hell. They're talking about what happens 
to your spirit when you die before the cross. Okay? I know now, Paul told the Corinthians, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Before the cross, what happened? Okay. It is a place of prisoners. All right? If you look at this, and if you go back to the understanding of the Hebrews and the Greeks of the Old Testament, then you understand that Hades, this place of death, has two compartments. An upper compartment and a lower compartment. Right? The upper compartment, one compartment, is for the righteous. Okay? The lower compartment, the unrighteous. Also with the unrighteous are the bound demons... That in Genesis 6 were put in everlasting chains. Okay? So, so get this in your head. When you start talking about fallen angels, there are some who are bound, there are some who are loose. Alright? In Genesis 6, you will hear about a big boat. Why? Because the Fallen angels were doing what? Procreating with women, natural women. And that's, and it says that that made giants. Well, here's what happens. An angel is not redeemable. You can't redeem a, an angel. So if you have an offspring between a woman and an angel, you now have an unredeemable offspring. So what did God do? He flushed it, <laughs> washed them all away. And the demons were put in chains in the lower portion of Hades or Sheol. That place is also now contains the unrighteous, chained demons, and those who ally with them, who are allies with them. They had God removed the demon race man because they could not be redeemed. And it also would have been in conflict with what? The God man. All right. Peter tells us they were put in everlasting chains. He tells us in second Peter, Jude also mentions it, that they're in chains forever and ever. Okay. They were kept there in a pit of the ungodly. All right. The unrighteous and the evil. And they are there in torment. Alright, now, let me make this clear. Verse 19 says, He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Okay? You move on over there to verse 22. Speaking of Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into the heaven after the angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Okay, anytime you see that angels and the powers and authorities, you know what they're talking about? The angelic host. All right? So he went down into the lower part of Sheol and proclaimed what? Victory. To the unrighteous, to the chained demons, and the fallen. 
That's what he did. He preached victory to the prison of spirits. Victory. Even though when you look at it, it looks like defeat. I'll give you another text. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. You know where I come from? You know what they call that? He rubbed their nose in it. He rubbed their nose in it. His enemies could see right in front of themselves the triumph and the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was right there looking at them. He comes out of that pit to the upper level. This is where he led captivity free. Who would that be? The righteous. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, David. Go through the list. All of them. See, they could not enter into heaven because the penalty of redemption had not been paid. So they were in a place called paradise. Okay? That's where they were. Remember when he was talking about Abraham's bosom? And he could look over, and if you could just give me a... Nope. Because all of those who had had faith in God were in a place in the Spirit but could not go into the presence of God because the penalty of sin had not been paid for. So he walks into that place and guess what he does there? Come with me. We are free. And they immediately went into the presence of God because the penalty had been paid. These would be the Old Testament saints. These are the ones before Calvary. They couldn't be resurrected. The penalty hadn't been paid. They entered glory. Their redemption was purchased. The price is paid on that cross. The victory of that triumph of that cross. And they had been there waiting for the victory. Perfect Forever is what the writer of Hebrews says. One offering forever. And he proclaimed victory. He proclaimed victory in a way that nobody else is going to ever be able to claim victory. He opened the doors to heaven. He released the captives. The Old Testament saints entered into it. They had actually entered into the very presence of God. He led captivity captive. Look where we're going. You ever thought about that? All of this is going on in three days. In three days, everybody's saying, we're defeated. The king is dead. They're going to come after us. 
Now we have this conquering hero, Jesus Christ. The, his enemies, the demons, are bound on one side, and the other people of his own are set free, sons and daughters of the Most High God. I don't know about you. That's a busy three days. Now listen. It was Jesus' act on that cross that did this. That allowed him to be the one who gave us gifts because of that victory. Hear me well. Hear me well. You cannot treat your spiritual gift lightly. Look at the cost of that gift. You think the price, the cost that Christ had to pay for you to have the privilege of having a supernatural enablement. His victory on that cross, he gained the right to rule his own church. Because he's the one who does what? Fills all in all. Now think about it. He went down to the pits of Sheol. He came up to the upper part of Sheol and went straight into heaven. The right he gained at the cross was to give you and me gifts. Not just salvation. Most people, you ask them about the cross, they're going to say, well, I got saved by the cross. It's the blood of the cross. It's the blood of the cross. You don't understand. Yes, you had salvation, but you also were given freedom and gifts. You are no longer bound by your sin. You have a spiritual enablement to serve Him because He died. Because He died. Because He died, gained the right to give each of us a gift and freedom. We have been freed from our old master. Listen, I don't know about you, but to me, reading the text out of Ephesians, this seems important to him. First of all, he died on a cross to save us, to keep us out of the lower part of Sheol. Second, he died on a cross to enable us to serve him. He has the right. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is love. I've already taught on love, and I've taught on grace. Right? Three words that we can identify quickly with in love. One, eros. That's a love that takes. Two, phileo. That's a love that gives and takes. Agape. 
It's the love that gives. Period. Gives. His grace, what? He gives of Himself. That's His love and grace. You know what the price was? The cross. Cross. So, now you have the foundation of what the gifts to the individual believer is and what the gifts to the church is. And He has the right. It's pretty impressive if you think about it. Pretty impressive. So when you think about Calvary now, I hope you think more than, wow, it saves me. It did save you. Amen. But it also gave you a right as sons and daughters of the Most High God that you have a supernatural enabling that He gives by based on His grace and His mercy on what He wants you to do in His church. Now you see why I get cranky over people who don't want to be in church. I get to see people who do not want to exercise their gifts. You know why? You're telling me I don't know the price that was paid to have that. But you know what? You do now. Let's pray. Father, we come before you understanding more and more of your grace, more and more of your love, more and more of this cross. Father, help us. Help us first and foremost not to take this for granted. The price that was paid for our redemption, the price that was paid for our enabling, the price that was paid for your precious bride, your church. And Father, each of us had the privilege of being in it. Father, let us, let us strive to stay. Let us strive to bow before you, knowing that you are the great victor. You are the hero. You are on the mount in awesome triumph. Help us to understand that, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.